are in a sermon series where we're just put, uh, preaching through the whole book of Ephesians. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to finish this thing through to the very end. And right now we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I'm going to read this, and then we'll pray together. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put, to hostility, put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today needing to hear from you. Father, there are so many competing voices, competing worldviews, competing ideas around us telling us how we should live telling us what we should do, how we should view others, how we should treat others, how we should relate to you, how we should spend the short lives that we are given here on earth. But your word is truth. And your word speaks today because your word is living and active. And so I pray that you would come speak to our hearts and to our spirits. Let us understand what your word has to say for us today. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. All right, I've mentioned pretty much at the beginning of every sermon in this series that the book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who once persecuted Christians, uh, actually was, was, became the first one to oversee the death of somebody for preaching the gospel, the first martyr. We read about that in the book of Acts. Paul was the one uh, who approved of that, of that stoning and the killing of Christians. He was zealous in pursuing Christians to take them to jail, to have them punished for preaching the gospel until God revealed himself to him. And Jesus Christ was revealed to him and he believed the gospel and it radically changed his life. And then he went about preaching the gospel in many places throughout the immediate area there, throughout the region that he lived in. And one of those places was a town called Ephesus. And when the gospel came into Ephesus, many people believed, and there was such a great adherence to the gospel message in that town that it changed the city 
to become in favor of Jesus Christ, which created a lot of economic problems in the city because the city profited over the worship of false gods. So much so that there was a riot in the city where they tried to stop these early Christians from preaching the gospel. Nevertheless, they persevered. And the change that God was bringing about in those lives and in that city continued to grow in its influence. And so a couple of years after Paul had spent some time with the Ephesian church, he wrote them this letter. And so we're reading a letter written from the Apostle Paul to essentially a church plant which is what we are. We're a little bit younger in our, in our church plant than they were when they received this letter. Nevertheless, I think it's a great letter for us to look at. And so as we look at chapter 2, there are several things I want to highlight. If you have the handout in front of you, we're going to start filling in some of those blanks. The first thing you'll see is that God chose to reveal himself first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world in Jesus. God chose to reveal himself first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world in Jesus. He says in verse 11, in the beginning of our passage, hold on, let me give you a second because I know there's a couple of blanks there. God chose to reveal himself first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world. In verse 11, he says, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. Called the uncircumcised by by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. What Paul is saying is that prior to the time they were living in, there were essentially two groups of people. There were the Jews whom God had chosen in in human history up until that point to be the, the focus of his revelation. He revealed himself in those, those early times specifically to the Jews. And so the two groups of people he had were the Jews and then the rest of the world, which is called the Gentiles. The Jews were known as the circumcised because that was the covenant that God made with Abraham that all Jews throughout all times should be circumcised. Why God choose that specific way to mark his people, I don't know and I don't want to speculate. But nevertheless, that's what we see in the Old Testament. That God reveals himself to this specific group of people. It's important to understand when it comes to reading the New Testament, it's important to have at least a basic understanding of the history of the Old Testament. The Old Testament covers the time leading up to Christ. The New Testament is basically the first century. Jesus, his life and ministry on earth, and then the early church for the next few decades after that. You see, what we learn in the Old Testament that Paul is referencing here is that God initially chose one man to reveal himself to. And that man was Abraham. We believe that he lived about 2,000 B.C., so about 4,000 years ago. Now, that's not to say that there was no revelation of God to humankind before that. In fact, we, we know from Scripture that God revealed himself to the very first human beings that he created, Adam and Eve. And there's evidence all, of, all along that God revealed himself to other people, but when he When God really wanted to get serious about letting the world know who he is, he starts with one man. That man is Abraham. And he comes to Abraham, and Abraham becomes our forefather in the faith. He becomes the very first member of the nation of Israel. He has a couple of descendants that are of particular noteworthiness. His son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. And these are the patriarchs, as we refer to them. 
They are the the beginning of the nation of Israel. And so God reveals himself to Abraham. He gives him a specific promise and a specific command. And his promise is that through him, he's going to multiply his offspring and begin a new nation. And Abraham, by faith, believes God, though he lives a long time before he gets his first true offspring. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's around 100 years old when his son Isaac is born. But this is the child that God promised to Abraham. And Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and God tests Abraham uh, by, by leading him to offer Isaac as an offering to the Lord, which he stops him from doing, but he proves his faith by saying that he's willing to go all the way and do anything that God would ask him to do. But Isaac gives birth to Jacob, who then would give birth to 12 sons. So God begins with Abraham, who gives birth to Isaac, who gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. The book of Genesis tells us the story of of these 12 tribes and how, how this nation that God began through Abraham is growing. This is the beginning of the Hebrew people or the Israelite people. Unfortunately, as this nation grows, they get taken into slavery. If you remember, if you've read through the book of Genesis, you might remember the story of a great famine coming on their land. And they basically take themselves and offer themselves to the Egyptians because the Egyptians have enough food to feed for them. The Egyptians treat them very favorably at the beginning because of one of Jacob's sons named Joseph, who had a very good relationship with the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time. But as the generations go on, the Hebrews or the Israelites become slaves in Egypt. And for at least a couple of hundred years, they live as slaves in Egypt until God sends a man named Moses to be their deliverer. These these probably sound familiar familiar stories to you. Moses delivers the, the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt, takes them into the wilderness where they wander for, for decades God, as God is purging them of the old generation that does not want to obey him, that does not have the faith that is required, and he takes them into the promised land that he had promised to Abraham. Once they're in the promised land, they're for a period of time ruled by what the Bible calls judges. These, these judges were sort of a... A blend of a political and military leaders. And the, the things that happened during the period of Judges, there wasn't a lot of obedience to what God wanted them to do. In fact, the Bible says several times through the book uh, named Judges, which tells us about this period, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Of course, is a recipe for disaster. God eventually gives them a king. As one nation, they have three kings who rule over them in succession. The first king over the nation of Israel is King Saul. Saul is succeeded by King David, who becomes the most famous king in all of Israel's history. Uh, So much so that the Messiah is, is said to come to us and to be another David and to come in the line of David. David is succeeded by his son Solomon, and after Solomon, the nation of Israel is divided into two, and for the rest of their history leading up to the time of Christ, they are led by bad kings, almost always bad kings, and they are eventually conquered by other nations. First, the northern half of the kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians, and then the southern half of the kingdom, which is where their capital was, which was Jerusalem, was conquered by the Babylonians, and then for 400 years... Leading up to Christ, 
There is no further revelation from God to the nation of Israel. And so that's just a real quick history. If we go back to 2,000 years when God begins to speak to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and he promises great things, and he, 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 he follows through on that. He does make Abraham into a great nation. They eventually become millions of people through this one man named Abraham. But for 400 years leading up to the time of Christ, God has seemed to have gone silent. In the centuries before that, he always spoke to them through somebody. Whether through it was a judge or a king or a prophet, there was somebody who was representing God to the people. But for 400 years, God's voice falls silent in Israel. And then, as the Bible tells us in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And so 2,000 years after God came to Abraham, Jesus is born on the earth. And he comes and he's born into this nation of Israel, which at that time is living under foreign rule. And at that time is desperate for a savior, desperate for the one that they referred to as the Messiah, the one who would come and deliver them, the one who was, who was going to come and he was going to be like David. He was going to lead them with justice and he was going to conquer their enemies and they would be a great nation again. And this was their expectation. And that's why was, as Jesus comes on the scene and he's doing all these signs and miracles, everybody's getting really excited and they're thinking, this is it. This is the time. This is the one. This is the Messiah. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and everybody just goes absolutely ballistic, just days before he's crucified, the crowd goes ballistic and they're screaming, Hosanna, which means save us. They know that he's the one. They know that he's the Messiah. And he's got, this, he's got this band of followers, which he calls his disciples, around him. And, and everybody is ready for this takedown of the Roman Empire, which was oppressing them and keeping them from being the people that God had created them to be. And then the night before Jesus is crucified... Actually, early in the morning of the day he is crucified, the Roman police come to arrest him. And one of Jesus' closest followers, this man named Peter, he knows exactly what to do. Because this is the Messiah, and we're now going to win this war, and it's time for Israel to be Israel again. And so Peter, knowing exactly what to do, he pulls out his sword, and he begins to fight against the Roman guards. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And from that moment on, nobody knows what to do with Jesus. His followers, one by one, begin to deny that they even knew him. And they flee from him. And everybody deserts him. And Jesus is taken into Roman custody. The one who was supposed to deliver them from the Romans has now submitted himself to Roman custody. And he's taken to jail. And he's put on trial. And he's beaten. And he's eventually crucified. And his disciples are completely confused and lost and without hope. They don't know what to do now. We've been waiting for, we've been waiting for hundreds of years for this man to come in, in, and here he is, and he tells us to put our swords away. And what God was doing, nobody expected. Because Jesus was bringing about a radical transition in how God related to mankind. The God who once chose to reveal himself to this man named Abraham and this, this 
nation called Israel is now making himself known to the whole world. And he's doing it through Jesus' death and his resurrection. God chose to reveal himself first to the Jews and then to the rest of the world in Jesus. What God is doing at that point in human history is so much bigger than what anybody else thought he was doing. What God was doing had more to, to do with the rest of the world than it did with Israel. He was bringing salvation to the world. He was expanding his revelation to all of humankind. And he does this through Jesus. And eventually, through Jesus' death and resurrection and the message of the gospel, will begin to spread from Israel all over the globe until it will get to places like Lower Borough, Pennsylvania. And we are the result of what God did 2,000 years ago to reveal himself to the rest of the world. We are sitting here today having this revelation, having this knowledge, having the the light of the gospel because of what God did 2,000 years ago through Jesus. But in the first century, they're just at the beginning stages of that. And Paul is communicating to some of the some of the first and furthest people geographically from from Israel as the gospel begins to spread geographically and it goes out into places like Ephesus. He, Paul is right there in the middle of it, and the the church at Ephesus is right there in the middle of God's unveiling plan to take the gospel to the world. Paul says in one of his other letters, the letter, uh, the book Colossians, he says in, in 1 verse 24, this won't be on the screen, you can just listen along. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you. Listen, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God's plan of redemption for ages and generations was hidden in a mystery. But in that particular day, God chose to make it known. And he's doing this through Paul and through the early church. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles... He wanted to make known among the rest of the world those beyond the the, the Jewish nation. He wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God was doing something. To To say God was doing something incredible in this first century, to say God was doing something just world changing doesn't even seem to do it justice. This was the most pivotal time in human history as God is now revealing himself. He is revealing not only himself, but his plan of redemption, which was hidden, which was a mystery for ages and generations. He's making it known. He's going to the rest of the world. He's taking this message of the gospel to the Gentiles. He's taking it to those outside of his chosen people, the Israelites. And it's a beautiful thing that he's doing. And it will result in the salvation of millions, perhaps billions of people over the next 2,000 years. And God only knows for how much longer. 
But we are now a part of this chain of events that began in the first century. Because the, here's the next thing you'll see on your handout. We, like the Ephesian believers, were once far from God, but Jesus has brought us near. We, like the Ephesian believers, were once far from God, but Jesus has brought us near. That's the good news of the gospel. That we, just like those, uh, those early Ephesian believers, once were far from God. Not because the gospel wasn't available to us like it was in their situation, but because we did not believe. But at some point or another in our lives, Jesus brought us near. That is, if you are a believer today in Christ. So we're just like them. Before Jesus, we were far from God. We talked about this the last couple of weeks of what it means to, to, to be apart from God, to not be in Christ to be God's enemies, to be under his wrath, the Bible tells us. We were once far from God, but Jesus has brought us near. It says in verse 12, And at that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Think about the, let's think about them, and then let's think about us. For them, they were just living the life that they knew to live. There was no gospel witness in their town. It just did not exist. But they were the first generation in Ephesus and in many other places to hear the good news of Jesus. And so there was a time when literally they were without Christ. They were absolutely 100% unaware of Jesus and what he had done for their salvation. They were excluded not only from the citizenship of Israel, but they were foreigners. They were foreigners to the covenants and to the promise without hope. And so it is for everyone who does not have Jesus. There is no hope apart from Jesus. They had false hope. They had false gods, they had false religions, but they didn't have true hope because they didn't have the true God and the true covenant which was in Jesus Christ. Without hope and without God in the world. But Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What was true of them historically was true of us spiritually before Jesus came into our lives. Whether we knew it or not, we were far from God, without hope, without the gospel. And yet Jesus came and he revealed himself and he brought us near by his blood. Jesus brings us near. Only Jesus brings us near. Religion doesn't bring us near to God. We've talked about this before. Religion can't bring us near to God. Jesus brings us near. And only Jesus can bring us near. It was true of them and it's true for us. And we ought to rejoice that he has brought us near. What an amazing time to live in a world where the gospel is continuing to spread. But to be born into a time and place where from the very beginning we've had the opportunity to hear the gospel. We must understand historically that was not always the case. And we must further understand that today there are many who still live without that hope of the gospel. There are many places around the world where people have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we want to go 
on these trips next year. And that's why we want to partner with missionaries and people, church planners around the world who are taking the gospel to the people who do not know. In a couple of weeks, we're going to bring a young family uh, in here on Sunday morning and introduce you to them. They're preparing next spring uh, to go to Indonesia, and they're going to um, seek out and find an, a completely unreached people group, plan a church, and translate the Bible into their language. And I can't wait to introduce you to them. I'm very excited about the opportunity our church has to partner with them at this stage in their ministry and to maintain a relationship with them as we see God do great things. We need more people like that. We need missionaries who are willing to go take the gospel to those who are far from God and without Christ. And we need to be willing to do the same thing right here. It's a both and, it's not an either or. We've got to take the gospel to this community and we, we need to be willing to make sacrifices of our time, talent, treasures, even to send off some of our friends to go and take the gospel to those who do not have access to the gospel right now. This is how the Ephesian church began. Just think if, if those early Christians would have just stayed in Jerusalem with the gospel and said, you know what, this is great, we have the gospel That's too bad about all those other people that don't have the gospel. The Ephesian church would have never happened. And what would have happened beyond that is we would have never had the gospel. And we would not have the privilege of living in a time and place where we have free access to the message of the gospel. So we should seek out those who don't have that privilege and share the good news with them. Let me give you a couple more points from this passage. Jesus makes race and ethnicity irrelevant. Jesus makes race and ethnicity irrelevant. There was incredible division between these two groups that Paul's talking about, Jews and Gentiles. There was incredible division and hostility between them. They couldn't couldn't be around each other. They couldn't stand each other. They hated each other. But Jesus brings them together as one. It says in verse 14, For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, Jesus makes race and ethnicity irrelevant. I say this ideologically speaking. Practically speaking, we know that race and ethnicity are, are very relevant. That there still is injustice between races and ethnicities. But on the ideological level, Jesus has made them irrelevant. He has erased the distinctions. Not culturally speaking, the cultural distinctions exist, and I think there's something good about that. But in terms of superiority of one group over the other, Jesus completely does away with that. He brings these two groups together as one. Now, practically speaking, we have to work to make this a reality. That was true of the early church. We see in the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem... The very first believers in Christ struggled with this. If you look at, if you look at the, I think it's in Acts 7, where, um, no, Acts 7 is where, it would have been before Acts 7 because that's where Stephen gives his speech and is martyred. Um, but Stephen was appointed to a leadership position to solve one big problem that they had in the early church, and that was division between Jews and the Gentiles. They were being treated differently. The, Jew, the Jews were being favored over the Gentile believers. So ideologically, Jesus takes away that dividing wall of hostility and makes the two groups one. Practically, we need to work these things out. We know that historically, Christianity has even be, been used to justify racism. 
which is absurd and offensive to the gospel. It is the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring us together, not to divide us. And so practically, we've got work to do. Today, if you go to Jerusalem, the hostility between Jews and Gentiles is probably as strong as it's ever been. There's a really fascinating thing going on in Jerusalem today in that the Muslims control the site of the old temple. Throughout Jewish history, when, when God began that nation with Abraham and he promised them the land that is Israel today and, and a little bit beyond that as well, he promised that this would be their land. The Jews eventually uh, would set up a temple. They would do this under King Solomon, the last king to rule over the nation as a whole before they were divided into two, into north and south. And they would set up a temple, and that would become the focal point of their worship toward God. It was, it was then and is today the most sacred place on the earth for Jewish believers. It was where they connected with and worshipped God. And it's been the site of a lot of tension over the centuries, to say the least. In fact, it was destroyed once, and then it was rebuilt, and then it was destroyed again. And there's, there's a desire among the Jewish state today to rebuild it a third time and to, to begin worshiping God there again. But the problem is, is that the Muslims control it right now. And so if you go and visit Jerusalem today and you go to what's called the Temple Mount, which at this point, all that's really left of the old temple is the retaining wall that the, that the temple sat on. And there's a Muslim shrine and a Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount where the Jews used to worship God. You think that creates a little bit of hostility? It's, it's one of the most hostile places in the world to go. There's so much tension there. You can feel it when you're there. And the Jews aren't even allowed on the Temple Mount, and they have to worship at what's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, which is, again, it's just a retaining wall that used to be home to the old temple. And so the Jews have been kicked off their most sacred place on earth and been told to worship at the wall while the Muslims freely worship on top. There's tension there. And in the different sections of the city of Jerusalem, there's Muslim areas and there's Jewish areas. And, and, and if you go there, you can walk pretty freely without fear of anything bad happening through any of those places. But the Jews and the Muslims don't. If you see a Jewish man in a Muslim part of the city, he's running. Literally, running. They run through there. They don't walk, they run. And that's because of the hostility that still exists today. Practically speaking, what Jesus accomplished on the cross needs to be lived out by us. And the only place that I think has any hope of seeing that become a reality is indeed the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. I think that's the only place where we can hope to see this completely lived. Our, our, our culture is so confused on this issue, on how to achieve racial unity. But in the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus has already dealt with it. He dealt with it on the cross. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And it's a beautiful thing to see in the church of Jesus Christ where people, regardless of race and ethnic background, come together to worship the one true God and the gospel that saves us all. This is what he has done. The next thing is that Jesus makes previous adherence to Old Testament law irrelevant. 
He makes previous adherence to Old Testament law irrelevant. Let me show you this. Verse, the end of verse 14 and end of 15. It says, In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And so he took the Jews who observed the law and he took the non-Jews or the Gentiles who had no regard for the law and in him he creates one new man, the man that results from the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the forgiveness that he brings because of that. And he makes previous adherence to Old Testament law irrelevant. Paul says, the Apostle Paul would say that everything that I did basically to adhere to the Old Testament law, I now count it as rubbish. It's no longer of any value to me now that I have met Jesus Christ. And he comes, Jesus comes, and he comes to those who adhered to the Old Testament law, and he comes to those who had no regard for the Old Testament law. He comes to both groups, and he reveals himself, and in those two groups he creates one new group, which is Christian believers. And he erases all of that other stuff and the need to adhere to it so that we might be one in him. He doesn't just come to those who kept the law. That was, that was a great source of confusion for the Jews in the, early century, in the first century in the early church. They couldn't understand why all these Gentiles who didn't obey the Old Testament law were receiving the Holy Spirit. Why they seemed to be uh, equal parts in the church. And it's a common theme throughout Paul's letters and through some of the other teachings of the apostles that Jesus has done away with that. He has torn down that wall between the two. And the, the Gentiles who did not hold to Old Testament law observance are brought in by the blood of Jesus. And, the, and those who did adhere to Old Testament law observance are brought in by the blood of Jesus. There's only one way into his church, and it's through Jesus' blood. It's not through keeping Old Testament law or not keeping Old Testament law. It's not through circumcision or uncircumcision. It's through Jesus and what he has done. And so he makes adherence to Old Testament law irrelevant. Let's keep going. Let's get these last couple done. Jesus reconciles us to God and to each other. Verse 16. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He reconciles us to God and to each other. So when Je- what Jesus did on the cross gives us peace with God. That's what reconciliation is. That we're brought near to him in a way that, that we have peace before him. So he reconciles us to God and then he takes the two groups of people, the Jews and non-Jews and he reconciles them to one another so that together before him we are one. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that one because it's repeating some of the earlier themes. But I wanted to, I wanted to make sure we covered 16 through 18. Now, the last thing on the handout. So then, we are all one body, his church. This is the point. The point of all of that is that we are all one body, his church. All of us, all believers throughout all time, everyone who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation is part of one body, which is Jesus' church. It is the church. We see in verse 19 through the end of our passage, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers. 
but fellow citizens with the saints. Again, saints is, in, in its New Testament usage, saints is a word that applies to all believers. It's not those who have been given special status among the believers. We, we're all considered saints in the New Testament. But, we, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We're going to look at future parts of Ephesians. We're going to look at what this means. The foundation, uh, build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as the cornerstone. How does God reveal himself first through Jesus and then through the apostles and prophets in the first century? Very important to know and to understand why we believe what we believe and how we got the Bible. We'll talk about that more uh, in other sermons. Verse 21, in him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling dwelling in the Spirit. So here's the idea, guys, that we are part of a church that God is building, that has, that has begun with the very first believers and will last throughout all of eternity. One of the most important things to understand is that what you and I are a part of is not redemption church. That ultimately we're a part of Jesus' church. And he's just got one church. He's got many expressions of that church. I understand that. And I'm not against that or think that's... Uh, I, I planted a new church. I think that, that we should have many churches, many expressions locally of the global and eternal church. But there is just one church and it's Jesus's. It belongs to him. It's his body and it's his bride. And we are all members of it. Members of the same body. Across all of human history and all and will last into all of eternity. In fact, it's been said, I've said it, I'll repeat it again, that the only thing that will last into eternity is the church. Every other organization that exists will cease to exist in eternity, except one the church. Every club that you're a member of, every company that you can work for, every nation that you can be a citizen of will one day cease to exist. But the one that will last for all of eternity is Jesus' church. It's his body and his bride. He loves his church. He died for his church and he has made us members of his church. All of us together, one body. Therefore, We should view our brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of where they attend or what different preferences they may have as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of their, of their race, of their ethnic background, regardless of any of the things that we tend to divide over, we are one body, His church. Okay, so not only should that bring us together, but that should change. If, if God says that we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, how should that change the way you live your life? If you are a saint, a member of God's household, if you are brought into his family, how should you live your life? How will this identity influence how you live this week? How will you live knowing that you are a part of God's household? 
that you're not a foreigner and a stranger. You're not just somebody who's along for the ride. You have been brought in. God has brought you near and he has, he has counted you in. Fellow citizens with all of the saints everywhere. How should you live your life? I think we have this sort of way of viewing Christians like we put certain people at the top and we expect them to live one way. And then, and then we have these sort of tiers and we kind of keep ourselves accountable to the lowest tier that we can justify associating with. And we just live mediocre Christian lives, not viewing ourselves the way that God says that we are. We are all one body, therefore let's live like it. Let's live united to one another, and let's keep ourselves accountable to the standard that we should live according to as members of God's household. Maybe there's, maybe as you think about what that looks like for your life and what it looks like to live as a member of the body of Christ, there's a particular area or two of sin that come to mind. I want to encourage you today to, in, in the next few moments as we worship, in fact, the worship team can come up and get, us re- get ready to lead us in worship. I want to encourage a time of confession. Confession of sin. I want to encourage a time of repentance. I want to ask us just to spend a few moments just asking, asking God, Lord, how do you want me to live? In the areas that he puts his finger on and says, well, I want you to, I want you to do this differently. I want you to repent of this. I want, us, I want us to do that together now. To take seriously the call that we are members of his body, his church. To take seriously the call to live as, as citizens of heaven. Of those that God has called and set apart. To be his ambassadors in this world. and To live righteously before him. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see how you want us to live. Open our hearts not to hold on to the things that that we cherish that are contrary to your will. But to be willing to lay those things down. To be willing to let go of the things that divide us from you or the things that divide us from one another. God, make make us one in your body as the gospel reconciles us to you and to each other and help us to live that way this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.